Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Welcome back to our discussion of citizenship in a networked age. I'm Adam White of the American Enterprise Institute. This is the fourth and final conversation in our series centered around a new report published by the University of Oxford and Templeton World Charity Foundation. In the first episode, I discussed the report with two of its co-authors, Oxford's Professor Andrew Briggs and Dr. Dominic Burbage. The second episode explored the report's themes of community, platform, and institution with David Brooks, Yuval Levin, and Christine Rosen. And the third episode explored the report's chapter on algorithmic versus democratic decision-making with Kerry Kalanisi, Malika Momond, and Ari Shulman. Each of these episodes is available in the AEI events podcast series, and the report itself is available at citizenshipinanetworkedage.org. Today, I'm pleased to be joined once again by two of the report's co-authors. Hello, Professor Briggs and Dr. Burbage. Welcome back. Hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Adam. It's great to be with you again. I've loved the uh, second and third podcast that you recorded. Well, I'm so glad to hear it. There was a lot to discuss, uh, not just in our first conversation, but in the two that followed. So eventually today we'll, we'll, we'll finish up with the report's seven recommendations. But before we get to that, let's get back to the themes we explored in the last two episodes, uh, community institution and platform and algorithmic versus democratic decision-making. Andrew, is there any point uh, that you'd like to start with on, on community, institution, and, and platform? We've covered everything from the nature of uh, living in neighborhoods and bumping up with people to the ability of, of local in-person organizations to benefit from social media tools, as well as you know, be, be in some ways hampered by or, or replaced by them. It was a wide-ranging conversation. What on this point of community institution and platform do you think is most important for the report's audience to keep in mind? Well, well, I love the way that in that discussion, you talked about local communities. And I think that's, that's very good because I think that the local communities are the foundations of the bigger national communities. I think that countries where the local communities are strong, often achieve a great national coherence. I'm thinking of Germany, where the Federal Minister of Finance and the Vice-Chancellor under Chancellor Angela Merkel, who's Olaf Scholz, was previously the mayor of Hamburg. And I have a sort of feeling that he learned an awful lot as mayor of one city community that he's brought with him to his role as Federal Minister and Vice-Chancellor. I think that where we can make local communities strong, it acts as a very good training ground for national leadership in a way that actually in the UK is quite rare because the sort of people who would go on to serve in government at cabinet level, in most cases probably wouldn't be interested in the local government and local leadership roles. If you now apply that to the new possibilities of the networked age and the way that these technologies can be used, how splendid if people can get good at using them in the smaller 
and more local communities so that then they, if you like, made their mistakes, but also seen their successes that they can take with them to using them on a larger scale at a national level. What you just described, it reminds me of, of Tocqueville's account of the United States uh, a century and a half ago, almost two centuries ago, with his account of, of local organization, local community, all of that being the, the seedbed of, of, of national unity. Of course, the, that, and that's true, as, as you point out, in, in terms of, of discourse, that the more that people are able to relate to one another in a, in a productive and functional way, one-on-one, hopefully it translates into broader consensus and dialogue and civic unity, which is a major theme of your report, nationwide or even more than nationwide. Of course, the danger, and one of the focuses of this report, is perhaps the relationship works the wrong way in the other direction to the extent that these tools that are global in scope make us worse at big picture dialogue. They might also undermine our ability to relate to one another face-to-face. The more that we become angry tweeters, the less well-equipped we'll be friendly conversationalists. Or am I, am I exaggerating the threat? No, I'm sure that's right. I'm sure it's much harder to be angry with someone who's just given you a good meal yeah. than it is to be angry with them <laughs> in, a, in a short email. On the one hand, there are aspects of relating that these technologies are never going to replace. One of the points that I like very much that came out of discussion too was that as we, I hope, move beyond the pandemic, move beyond the lockdown and travel again becomes possible, we may find ourselves distinguishing between transactional meetings where the kind of medium that we're using today actually works quite well. I just had a board meeting for my laboratory this morning where we had participants from New Zealand and Germany and France, and they were all able to participate just for an hour without traveling. So, so for that, it was very effective. And then on the other hand, relational meetings with family, with friends, where we're just celebrating being together, for which shared meals and shared hugs will be integral. And we want to go back to being able to travel for those. So I think that will be a useful distinction to make. That means that we're going to have to acquire a whole lot of new skills and expertise to know which is which and when to use what kind of communication and so on. And another point that I thought came out rather well from the second discussion was that the rising generations may actually have advantages from this point of view. That is to say, from my generation, the use of these digital network technologies is a new tool that we did not grow up with when our minds were being formed and which we've acquired and we're having to learn the skills to acquire it. There's a rising generation for which this isn't a new skill to acquire. It's the world in which their minds are formed. And so they will approach it completely differently from those who've come to it as it were, having formed their early habits in a different kind of world. So you get a a very simple um, example in that, in how we read. So I learned to read from books. So most of my early reading was from books, okay? And I sort of got some ingrained mental habits. So usually I can remember whether I read something on the left-hand page or right-hand page. And often I can remember where on the page I read it. So if I'm flipping back, I can quickly find it, you see. Now, If I'm reading on the screen, 
from an HTML version, those, those skills don't serve me at all. <laughs> because I'm, I'm now reading in a way that's different from the way that my early mind was formed. And a generation is growing up that's actually very good at reading on a tiny screen. They're very happy with that and very comfortable with it. And, and, and they've got those skills. So I think all of these are skills that we're going to acquire. And the importance of the report for that is that for the rising generation, the issues that they will face and for which we need to equip them are issues because they are growing up in the context of that kind of networking, which are different, I think, from the issues that we face who have acquired this kind of networking later on in our life when we'd, we'd formed our habits in, in a different context. Right. So for these digital natives, as they're often called, the, uh, the challenge will be to, to instill, them, instill in them some of the, the virtues or, or habits that, that they won't receive because they're not uh, brought up in, in the world of, of books and, and written dialogue and, and, and face-to-face interaction as much as intermediated interactions. I think that's right. It's why we need to be so supportive of parents and so supportive of teachers because they've got crucial roles to play in this. Now, now, Dr. Burbage, when Professor Briggs was speaking a moment ago about the sort of the building up from local to regional, national, and so on, it calls to mind some some thoughts on order, emergent order, and, and so on, that has some echoes in economic thinkers. And I know that's been on, on your mind and, and something that you'd like to to, to bring up in our conversation today. Is, is that a fair, a fair connection between what he was getting at and, and, and your thoughts on economic thinking and its relevance to all of this? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I just, there's a lot of interesting areas here. I mean, I'll just kick off this, if I can, with some uh, thoughts on, on your comments on, on Alexis de Tocqueville, which links very nicely with what was said by David Brooks in, in episode two of this uh, podcast series in terms of one of his concerns was, although on the face of it, not that much changes with digital technologies and that we take a lot of our relationships that we already had and we now you know, communicate in innovative, efficient ways, but we more or less maintain some of those networks. He did feel that hierarchy is seriously attacked as a concept, especially among young people through the experience of the internet. And I thought that was a really interesting, albeit slightly controversial point. Some people say, why do we even need hierarchy in the first place? Um, So surely this is a good thing. We're also in general pro-equality. So, you know, we don't want to arbitrarily impose hierarchy, but it speaks to all of these dilemmas that Professor Briggs has brought up in terms of the way in which the local relates to the larger level, be that national or, or global. And it's interesting that with, with Tocqueville, so Tocqueville, as you know, you know better than me, but just for the, the purposes of making my point, Tocqueville is, was an aristocrat, French aristocrat, who visited the US uh, originally to do a study of prisons systems with a colleague of his and that's why he sort of got his funding so to speak um, to do the trip but he fell in love with American American culture and and wanted to study everything he could and, and write home about it and that meant that he entered into what is a sociological discussion of how Americans were living 
and what that meant for the sort of political structures that they had. And so he sees this fundamental connection between equality and democracy. And when he compares that back against his experiences of, of France and elsewhere in Europe, the aristocratic element seems to crowd out the possibility of such equality and therefore such a strong democracy, at least in, in those times. And when you go through uh, democracy in America, it's interesting the sort of anecdotes that he brings out as to why there is that kind of equality. And I'll just mention two examples he gives. One is that you have sons who can earn more than their fathers in America. He hasn't seen that ever. And of course, in Europe, wealth is passed on a bit more hereditary than going out and earning. And so for him, the kind of bountiful opportunity there is in America really means that the whole structure of society is undermined with what we would call nowadays meritocracy. And we would say that's a great thing. But from the point of view of, of traditional society, meritocracy means young people earning more than older people. And that breaks a lot of the customs and undermines the, the authority or the respect uh, towards older people. And the, and, and not the second example I'll mention, uh, obviously he goes through all kinds, is the way in which he sees that if you don't like things, you can move and start your own town in America. You, you can go out there as a pioneer and found a new place. And that means that the rules or the religious traditions can remain quite intact as you build your own community. And there's this whole sense in America of, of building your own community, building your own institution in order to be true to your principles. And part of that is great space that there is in America, but it's also a space which is, in a way, land that will reward the starting of a new community, so not going into barren space. And so that whole mentality means that we've got a connection between associational freedom with equality. And sometimes we take that a bit for granted. So if we go back to David Brooks' comment about hierarchy being seriously undermined by the internet, we have in a way a great equalizer through the internet. And that is that everyone comes online. The famous adage, of course, that came up was, you know, no one knows I'm a dog online. So we're all just there interfacing as equals. Everyone gets the same number of characters on, on Twitter. Um, everyone can post like everyone else on, on, on Facebook and Instagram. And in that sense, we're all equals. But where we go to is the same place. Yeah. We don't go to a new place. So when we build a community, we're trying to do it in the cacophony of noise of everyone else in exactly the same place. And I think this is where the struggle is coming because there is this unwitting centralization of discourse that doesn't connect very well with the older tradition of American democracy as building a community afresh. And so I do think this is really important when it comes to understanding how the efficiency of the internet nevertheless leads to some serious tensions. We're seeing this in a couple of ways in the current discussions over duties of Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms to, to judge content, to prioritize some over others, maybe deprioritize or get rid of content. This is obviously a big issue right now in American political discourse. And what you just described, you know, it, it resonates in two ways on these, these issues. 
One is that anytime there's criticism of, of Facebook or Twitter, you know, one of the common refrains is, well, if you don't like it, don't join it, go start your own. Of course, the, the great societal value of Facebook and Twitter has been that it is the one place where you can go and connect with all these other people, right? There's great network effects in having that one platform or two or three platforms being the central hub of conversation. And so there's great freedom to say what you'd like to say on on. Twitter or Facebook, uh, except that ultimately it's, it's all to be judged by a very small number of, of bodies, by Facebook and, and by Twitter and, and by Google. And then related to that, then, when these entities make these judgments, which are almost like the sovereign judgments of, of you know, Twitter in charge of its metaphorical territory or Facebook in charge of its, there are questions about free speech. And of course, in, a, you know, in American constitutional law, free speech is a matter of government restraint. So people say, well, Facebook filtering or prioritizing or deprioritizing information, that's not a matter of free speech because Facebook isn't the government. Yet I think people sense that there's something very analogous to that role that Facebook is playing in the modern online public square versus the role that local or even national government used to play in the real public square when they prohibit certain certain speakers. And so that emergence of Facebook and Twitter, as, as you put it, uh, Dr. Burbage, uh, the one place or the two places that everybody goes, um, where we're all going to the same places, we end up having the kind of conversations we used to have about sovereign governments, except it's distorted by the fact that they're not governments at all. They're, they're private institutions in a way. No, exactly. And I think that's something that came up really interesting as well in, in episode two of, your, of, of, the, of the podcast series in terms of why tech companies like to call themselves platforms. Yeah. And the idea there in the discussion, as I understood, was that although this looks uh, new and novel and therefore attractive, um, it has an added benefit that it sort of relieves you from the duty of being uh, culpable for everything that's happening um, on your site. And so we avoid uh, talking about these social media sites as publishers and therefore they don't really need to check or agree with the content. We like that because it allows for instantaneous response. So we're very beleaguered and tired by the idea of having a comment section within an article where they review it before they publish it. And even after then, they review comments back on your comment. So the whole process just doesn't feel like a conversation. And so we want that kind of instantaneousness to the conversations that we have online. But the problem comes in shirking responsibility for some of the ideas and the ideals that guide the conversations that we're having. If these are to be democratically energetic and if they are going to inspire people, then in some way we want some ideals or some principles uh, to be involved in that conversation. So in the report, uh, one of the things we mention is how the Internet is a little bit like making a path through a jungle in the sense that the more people do it, the easier it is. So if you start off with trying to find your way through the jungle, it becomes almost impossible. But the internet is one of these few goods that increase through use. So normally in economics, we would say, oh, a good uh, diminishes through its consumption, and that makes it rivalrous. But instead with the internet, because of web 2.0 and the 
introduction of user-generated content, the more you consume the internet, the more internet there is. And that gives the sense in which all of our engagement is good and yet can't be taxed, can't be treated as a scarce resource because we're all in this business of sharing. But at the same time, we have to ask, what really is the responsibility for the platform? And some of the ideas and early debates about private property, I think, can be useful here because one of the reasons why you set down ideas and laws about private property is to be able to find ways of respecting what people have or what they are when without them there wouldn't be that same sort of respect or support and so in that sense sometimes with the internet we have to realize that we can bring in standards or bring in ideals that help shape the good that we are exchanging and so you mentioned, for example, Adam, in, the pre- in one of the previous podcasts, you're paraphrasing from Jonathan last, talking about the way in which conservatives could be okay with community standards online uh, because we believe in those communities and we want to build communities. And so in that sense, we respect the freedom of people to be able to build with the standards that they have shaping the good that they're offering. And I think that was a great point. And I think it's one we have to sort of take to heart if we're to understand options for going forward that avoid a kind of anarcho-centralism to some of the way in which these, these discussions are monopolized by platforms that can't work out how to bring about the sorts of ideals of discourse that originally inspired their companies. Professor Briggs? This is so topical at the minute. What is the scope and the limits of free speech, uh, whether it's someone wanting to publish their impressions of their experiences in the White House or fact-checking on tweets from the president? And one of the things that we found as we were uh, writing this report is we found ourselves asking are these issues that we're facing ones that have never arisen before? Or are they issues that have been around for a a very long time, but now they've got a new sort of manifestation, almost a new industrialization with digital networking? And I think this question of free speech is just such a case where it's been around for a long time. You know, those of us who are in universities like Oxford, we love free speech. We treasure it. It's precious. And the answer to something you disagree with is not to stop someone saying it, but to respond to it and and to address it. But there have never been unlimited rights to free speech. Whether you think of the, um, you know, the classic example of shouting fire in a crowded cinema or laws of slander and libel or in a court of law under oath, the witness is not free to say anything that they think. They're they're bound to say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth under oath. And why is it difficult? Well, it's difficult because there are bad people saying bad things and careless people saying careless things. That means that there's not going to be a simple answer. It's going to need a very, very careful public debate about the relationship between freedom and regulation something that Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, pleaded for in in his book on this topic last year. 
we had another case of that here in Oxford, that the premier lecture of the year in the university is called the Romanes Lecture. Last year it was given by Isa Manning and Buller, who was head of our MI5, a bit like the sort of CIA in America, um, and later head of the Wellcome Trust, or chair of it. And she was talking about her time as head of MI5 and things she was glad about, certainly, you know, terrorist attacks forestalled that she was very proud of. But then towards the end, she talked about her one regret as in her time as, as head of MI5. And it was this, that with any security agency, you've got an inevitable trade-off between surveillance and privacy. And you can have more of one, but then you have less of the other. Or you can have more of the other, but then you have less of the first. And she felt this was such a key issue that it needed a very good public debate about it. Now, traditionally, governments don't debate publicly their security services. <laughs> but, but she had wanted that to happen. It never did happen. And I sort of feel that we're going to have to have this with these digital technologies. We've got to have it with truth and falsehood in these media. In a minute, we're going to come on to decision-making. Are we going to have to have that sort of debate about decision-making? Just with the truth and falsehood, it's an issue that's been with us forever. You can think of lots of examples. I just watched the um, opera of uh, Lucia de Lammermoor based on Walter Scott's novel, The Bride of Lammermoor. And the whole plot depends on fake news in the form of a forged letter. <laughs> so, so fake news isn't new, but the capacity to deceive has changed out of all recognition with the new digital technologies, including the machine learning that's applied to our network things. Yeah. So we're going to have to learn new skills and new wisdom about the discernment that's needed in the context of a public debate about how much freedom do we want and how much do we want these companies to be regulators themselves and to be regulated in turn by governments. Yeah. That issue of, of sort of privacy and, and other societal interests has really come to the fore. Just in the last few months, we're, we're taping this in June of 2020. Um, we've been having these conversations now for the last few weeks. And of course, this is all in the middle of the COVID-19 outbreak. And you have questions about testing and contact tracing and, and how much information about ourselves should we give out to the public in terms of our health status and so on. For the sake of, of society as a whole, what's the trade-off between, say, my privacy and my, uh, my own personal information and the consequences uh, or maybe the societal benefits of sharing that information for the sake of, of people around me? Now, obviously, we've had those discussions about privacy and other trade-offs in the national security context. We've had them in the economic context. How much information do you want to share with Amazon? Um, because it can then better target advertisements towards you in not necessarily a, a nefarious way, just a helpful way. Now I'm seeing advertisements for things that I might actually want to buy, but again, at, at the cost of privacy. I hate to shortchange this conversation, but I do want to focus a little bit on the other subject that we discussed on algorithmic and, and democratic decision-making, since we, we touched on that just a moment ago. In that part of this series, that the episode three focusing on algorithmic and democratic decision-making, there was a lot of conversation about, first of all, can we really draw a line between 
algorithmic and democratic decision making? Uh, and second, what's the value of each? And of course, those are both explored a lot in the report and in the recommendations. Uh, your recommendations include a recommendation on, on the need to find how best to combine scientific judgment or algorithmic judgment and democratic decision making. But let's just begin with the, with the big picture question. What is the value of democratic decision making? If, if, if algorithmic decision making can be more precise, can be faster, more accurate, what value do we get from the slower, sometimes messier forms of, of democratic decision making? Yeah, it's a great question. The comment of Maleka Moment in episode uh, three of this, this podcast series comes to mind for me, where she was um, discussing the uh, use of algorithms and saying that algorithms boil down to a, an if-then statement. And I thought, apart from that being accurate, it's, it's an apt way of looking at this dilemma between, on the one hand, algorithmic decision-making and, on the other hand, democratic decision-making. And so we have to ask, what is the specific difference with the democratic? So is it just another form of if-then, or is it something else? And I think what interests me particularly is this sort of older tradition of, of debate, uh, which dates back at least to Aristotle on what is deliberative democracy and the extent to which a community and its deliberation is of a quality uh, different to the execution uh, of a formula. So we all know that there can be rules and democratic societies can put in place certain rules that have immediate effect and that works similar to an algorithm. But we also know that there is this sort of process of conversation and listening, which is qualitatively distinct from execution. It can be qualitatively distinct in terms of being worse in the idea of it being inefficient. So it takes a long time and sometimes you don't get resolution. And so you can't move forward on something, but something about the process with which we come to unity through making decisions together captures ideas within deliberative democracy that I think it's important to not lose sight of. So when I think about the idea that algorithms are like if-then statements, I was thinking about also your comment, Adam, in the last podcast about how a statute can be like an algorithm. And Carrie Konlinski was mentioning how that can also be like the US constitution is a sort of algorithm in a sense of having a clear kind of structure of how things uh, move forward when they are presented on each of the particular items. But there's also a, a key difference with democratic decision-making that can be understood in those terms that, that while algorithms are if then democratic decision is, is sort of if then, but if not, not sure. So with algorithms, if then, if not, okay, we don't do that. But from the point of view of democracy, if not, creates more debate and discussion and means we're not sure. So the way in which our laws work is that we specify a particular behavior and a particular repercussion for that behavior or a particular mandate we give to an agency or a particular right 
that we have within the Bill of Rights. And that is affirmative on particularities. And when it doesn't fall within the scope, we don't know. So we have this long process of lit litigation about the things we're not sure about, whether it falls under the scope or not. And when it clearly doesn't fall under the scope, and we all agree on that, that means we just open up this even longer debate within Congress or within local government about what is it that we should do in that space. So the bits in between look very different in democratic decision-making compared to in computer-based decision-making. And we need to capture a sense of that, I'm not sure about things, that is so useful for democracy and coming to decisions together if we're to preserve that specialty humans have for moral decision-making. Now, when we use the term democratic decision-making, I think it's natural to think first and foremost about voting in an election or maybe a legislature voting on a bill. But what your report is focused on is something broader, right? It's, it's not just sort of those one-time actions. It's things like a jury, uh, a jury that has to deliberate on something um, to conclude whether the if actually fits or not, if you want to put it in if-then statements. Or even if you live in a neighborhood and there's a question about whether to fix the street now versus later, right? Basic questions about joint collective decision-making through deliberation. And I know, uh, Professor Briggs, that as, as you listened to the earlier episodes, uh, you focused on this question of, well, why do we have juries? What's the value of a jury? And that can help to illuminate the value of, of democratic decision-making more broadly. I love the way that the third episode started with challenging the algorithmic versus democratic decision-making. We use that title to provoke thought, but of course, you, you could often think about algorithmic and democratic decision-making. I think what Dominic was just saying just now is absolutely right, that it is best the democratic process leads to a consensus and to a joint commitment to the outcome. It's not invariably so. Four years ago in the UK, we had a referendum about whether to remain in Europe or to leave. Uh, so I heard. 48-52, which to a scientist means, whoa, there's not much in it. Right. <laughs> but of course, to a decision-making process, it means, well, the 52s have it and the 48s don't. What it did not lead to was shared commitment to the outcome. It was actually followed by three or more years of, I think, the most dysfunctional government I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. And according to the latest poll, the 15th of June, people are still pretty much 50-50 as to whether they think it was a good idea or a bad idea. Slight majority thinking it would be better to remain, but not much in it still. If we go to the, the juries, you might think actually the law court would be the last place where you'd want machine decision-making to happen. You know, we're talking about uh, either fining people amounts of money that hurt them or possibly removing their, restricting their freedom for a number of years or more. So we think, well, first of all, there's a decision about whether or not the person is guilty, which in principle is a technical decision, however hard it may be in practice. In, in principle, you're trying to make a technical decision as to whether or not that person did it. So we have juries, first of all, because of the uncertainty 
in most cases, of where the evidence leads. We talk about beyond reasonable doubt. That's a probabilistic statement. It may be quite difficult to know in many cases. And in the report, um, we talk about Condorcet's jury theorem, where he shows that provided that there's a more than 50% chance that any one member of the jury gets the right answer, then you're more likely to get the truth, the correct answer, the more jurors you have. So that's an advantage in having a larger number. And for historical reasons, it's, uh, it's often 12. Another benefit of a jury is to mitigate bias through discussion. And goodness knows, just at the moment that we're recording this, we're all too aware of the risks of bias on the grounds of what someone looks like in decision-making. The evidence is that that's helped through discussion. You're more likely to expose and ameliorate bias through having discussion between people. And then, of course, the third reason, maybe historically the most important of all, is the venality of individuals in power. (laughs) (laughs) The closer the judge is to those in power, or the more power they have themselves, the greater their susceptibility to corruption. There are all these reasons why we think a jury is quite a good idea. They are actually all reasons that can be addressed by machine learning and where machine learning may address them actually better than humans. The one thing they won't do is to give the accused person the sense that they're being judged by their peers. The machine can never do that. And then you have a separate function of a court, which is where it's been decided that the person is guilty of deciding what the sentence should be. Here, Humans are notoriously variable. In the UK, by 2009, the situation was a matter of such concern that the newspapers were describing it as a postcode lottery. Think of it as a zip code lottery. The sentence you got just depended on where the court happened to be sitting for circumstances that were otherwise identical, you see. And so the Sentencing Council was brought in in the UK and they came up with some pretty clear guidelines. They didn't call them algorithmic, but they are pretty algorithmic. And actually, it's quite fun. You can go to the Sentencing Council website and you can try being a judge yourself. So they'll let you sit in on the evidence and then they'll they'll tell you what the law is and what the Sentencing Council guidelines are. And you can, um, you know, pick from the options as to what you think the sentence should be and compare it with what actually happened uh, in that case. And Machines might get quite good at this because the reason that we think actually we should have a human judge is we say, well, you know, you've got to weigh up the case law. You've got to know not only the technical law, so that judges have to be intellectually and academically on top of the law, but you've also got to know what's been decided in other cases and what's been thought to be fair in previous cases. Now, machine learning methods are rapidly developing to get rather good at that. And they're actually, they've got greater reading capacity than a human has, and they've also got greater capacity for familiarization with other cases than a human has. So you can begin to see in this rather surprising case where you think, you know, surely this should be the last place where machine decision-making should have a role to play. Actually, it might be quite good at it, And there might be aspects of it that it might actually surpass human capacity at. As indeed, we already know that in in medical diagnosis, there are some well-defined fields of medical diagnosis where I personally would rather be diagnosed by a machine than by even an experienced human um, physician. Dr. Burbage? 
Oh, this is fascinating. I love the examples um, that and, uh, Professor Briggs gave, and especially the way in which you can participate in practicing being a judge yourself. I think I should uh, try that out soon uh, <laughs> to gain a bit more experience on, on this topic. But I, it's great I, fun. I do, I do, yeah, no, I, I do think there's there's a lot there, and and just one point to add about the uniqueness of of courts, and and I do you know appreciate the fact that that so much of it is algorithmic in the sense of following straight uh, what has been set out in law. But one area which is a bit less looked at uh, within this literature is the choice of, of punishment and questions of character of the criminal. So after you've determined that the person is, is guilty for a crime, there is this very human moment of um, condemning them to a certain amount of punishment. And for that, in a lot of jurisdictions, the judge will be aware of previous punishments that, that might have been imparted on the person. And because of following it as a, as a human to another human, there will be a sense of the sort of contrition or character uh, of, the, of the person who, who is, was accused. Now, of course, there is some formula within that in the sense of if you plead guilty from the beginning, then the maximum sentence is going to be much lower than if you had pled not guilty, but then were found uh, guilty. But within that, there is scope for all kinds, um, and the judge has a lot of discretion. And on top of that, it also works in the sense of saying, I'm a human person. I am choosing this punishment because I think it is just and I am giving it to you. I'm handing it down while knowing that I myself could be in your position. And there's something very powerful in that some sort of supreme equality before the law that the judge him or herself is likewise equal before the law. And as much as we impart punishment on others, we know that things can easily be the other way around. And that helps us make sure that it's done in a way uh, that addresses the particular injustice concerned and can be understandable by everyone. And this is the real danger, I think, if there is an over-reliance on algorithmic decision-making without appropriate appreciation of broader questions of human flourishing and also moral decision-making and what is unique about the moral. Because when we talk about that equality, what we're talking about is a sense in which the particularities of what decision is made may be inconsistent based on that awareness of character. That is what gives it the consistency to it. Professor Briggs, am I sort of getting at some of the points you were making? I think this is so important, uh, what you're, you're saying, Dominic. Some of the criteria that judges are required to apply present huge problems for humans. So that they're, they're actually required to take account of the degree of remorse manifested by the accused or by the stage, the person who's been found guilty. And human judges find that staggeringly difficult. How do you know how sorry someone is, as opposed to how good an actor they are? 
So some of these are very difficult to apply. But what, what I'm so glad that you've introduced, Dominic, is the moral decision making. Because, of course, sentencing is not a, a utilitarian activity. If it, if it was, supposing we said the criterion is we want to minimize the probability of recidivism. Well, then it's very easy. You chop off the person's head because then they can't commit the crime again. So you would have achieved that objective, but you think, hang on a minute, there are other considerations, considerations of justice. And I'm so glad you also brought in the element of moral decision-making, because this seems to be a priceless human capacity. And the more we learn about it, the more it seems to be a capacity that involves our whole humanity in a way that vastly exceeds just our rational selves. And at the moment, and possibly forever, we know no way that that could be manifested by a machine learning. Yeah, it's almost impossible to reduce to a set of if-then statements, just the full well of human experience and tradition that embodies these principles that all get bound up in a single decision sometimes in democratic decision-making. And also, uh, no matter how well a machine can learn, it's very hard to imagine it replicating the capacity for, for empathy and, and deliberation and empathy in deliberation that's so important to certain, certain aspects of human decision-making. In the United States, on the question of sentencing, we went through a similar experience, by the way, where sentencing, the discretion in sentencing was leading to wildly disparate sentences from one case to the next. And so the federal government in the United States instituted a sentencing commission, which created guidelines, which really did look like an algorithm in terms of a point system that would, for each offense, that would result in a different sentence. But then the inequities of that system became very apparent because it wasn't well equipped to really, to deal with the subtlest circumstances of each case, the kinds of things that would be evident to a judge or a jury but not to people writing guidelines in advance. And at the same time, through the United States Supreme Court, there was a return of more decision-making and sentencing to juries, which while the juries, they, an individual jury will not see as many cases as a judge. A judge will see hundreds of cases through his or her time on the court. A jury might only see one, but you have a dozen jurors instead of just one. And so their deliberation on a sentence, just like deliberation on guilt, can help do better justice to the subtleties of the circumstances than maybe an individual judge can. Dr. Burbage, I know a while ago I had asked you about what we can learn from economic thinking in this, and I managed to, to, to bring us past that point before you got a chance to actually raise the point. So do you want to return to that briefly before we talk about recommendations? I want to just make a first point, which is about this way in which we have a sense of bias or unbias in sort of the decisions that are being made, which I do think is crucial for all of this discussion. So it was brought up in the last podcast about how we need to realize there is a bit of a difference between accountability and explainability of the decisions that are made. And sometimes we confuse the two, but one of the particular areas of interest for me in that podcast discussion was making clear that there's a distinction. And I think we see this in terms of, on the one hand, sure, we can review particular punishments that come through court decisions. But on the other hand, we have to ask, were good explanations given? 
And that means that we have an explanation that is appropriate both to the victims of a crime and also an explanation of the punishment to the criminal. And that will vary based on the person. And so one of the sort of difficult points as decision-making moves towards algorithmic and as we rely increasingly on artificial intelligence is we're actually moving away from that ability to give good explanations. And we, of course, are angry at our parents and our parents' parents' generation of punishing without explanation. And with our kids, we have much more emphasis than we used to have in the past on needing to explain you know, to them why a certain bit of conduct is not appropriate. We would think it's brutal to punish them without any explanation, just coming seemingly out of nowhere. And so while we are more sensitive to it as a society, in our reliance on technology for questions of efficiency, we're actually moving further away from that. And so this brings me a bit to, to the point I wanted to make about some economic thinkers who I think are a bit underused but can help us with all of these questions. Because at base, where I think there is real need is for more discussion on how the micro relates to the macro. So what counts as fairness in both places or what counts as coordination or efficiency in both places? And what a lot of people do who quickly go in and out of some of the classical and neoclassical economists is they say, okay, very fixed view about private property or very fixed view about incentive structures or the nature of the human person as being orientated towards incentives or what's in the self-interest. And they skip from that to then discussing other questions, which make it look as though some of those authors were purely utilitarian. And of course, utilitarianism is, is, is behind all of our discussions here. It's already been brought up by Professor Briggs in terms of what sorts of reasoning and decisions are appropriate, where he identified clearly that sometimes utilitarianism is a go-to and useful for having a clear dimension to the problem at hand, but in other times it doesn't seem to be appropriate. And what we're looking for in the report and also in our discussions is the space for the wider discussion of when there are limits to a purely utilitarian framework and when we can in fact have broader discussion of, of human flourishing and moral decision-making but on terms of the economic thinkers, one uh, article I find very interesting, for example, by Vernon Smith is on the two faces of, of Adam Smith, uh -huh. where he juxtaposes the way in which Adam Smith on the one hand seems to be emphasizing acting in the self-interest, and on the other hand, having a sense of the sympathy with others' interests and the extent to which you derive benefit and pleasure just from other people uh, having a happy and good life. And so how do we make sense of these two very different faces to Adam Smith? And the point being made is that, well, you see it in the way the macroeconomic outlook gives coordination to these different aspects of the human person. And so I think we have to think bigger and use some of these authors to think bigger because what they managed to do, not just, you know, Adam Smith, but uh, Friedrich von Hayek and, and Milton Friedman, 
and others is that they were able to look simultaneously at the micro and the macro. And that's a methodological innovation. And unfortunately, we are not doing that anymore. We're either looking at how things like digital technologies affect me as an individual, as a consumer, or affect my psychology or my tastes and habits, or we're looking at society as a whole saying it's bringing about a level of confusion or division that we've not seen before. And we need a set of people who are going to work hard on how to link the micro and the macro and what's the shape of that. So I think that kind of methodological innovation uh, is, is needed. And, and I think it's, it's an open door. There is so much conversation that can happen there, which, which is needed and not happening at present. Now, looking at the macro level and with an eye to this, this problem of increasing division, when your report reaches the recommendations, it's, it explicitly begins with this problem, right? Specifically, you say in the report, the recommendations of this report are each connected to the need for unity as a societal goal. And so having reviewed the whole scope of, of these issues, including many issues that we've never had an opportunity to even touch upon in these four episodes, as you reach the, the conclusion and you offer specific recommendations, you're focused on restoring unity because of the value that consensus and deliberation can bring to human decision-making. Now, we, just as we couldn't do justice to the whole report in, in the series, we can't, do, we can't do justice to the seven recommendations. We, we might not even get to touch on all of them. So I want to at least list them for the audience so they know um, what they're looking for. These are the seven recommendations. One, identify and protect human uniqueness for moral decision-making. Two, nurture the complementary skills of humans and machines for collective decision-making, obviously one that we have touched on quite a lot. Three, engage in consensus building about civic ideals for a networked age. Four, teach listening as a civic virtue. Five, maintain distance between thoughts and speech. Six, promote the value of privacy for personal moral development, and seven, revalue democracy in terms of the ability to bring about social unity and trust. There's a lot there. Maybe we'll begin with numbers five and six, maintaining distance between thoughts and speech and promoting the value of privacy for personal moral development. And in these recommendations, your focus is on the problems that arise when we erase these spheres of privacy, the privacy for an individual to think through issues before they react, right? And then second, when they do react, to have a, a space for discourse that isn't fully public so that we can try ideas out, we can afford to be wrong in private settings so that our own thinking can benefit from deliberation and conversation and debate and scrutiny before we sort of announce our views to the world. In this day and age, especially through social media, the distance between thought and speech is very short. Sometimes there isn't much thought at all. There's just reaction. And then second, these reactions are occurring in a very public forum or a private forum that can be very easily made, be made public, erasing this ability for people to try things out before settling upon their final views. It ultimately requires us, if we're going to speak up at all, to commit instantly to a thought, knowing that that thought, if it's incorrect or if it's offensive, 
maybe maybe hung around your your reputation on the internet forever. Professor Briggs, why don't you begin? Why don't you tell us about the need to promote the value of privacy for personal moral development? One of the reasons I love working at the University of Oxford is the place where you can so quickly find out that you were wrong. (laughs) And that, curiously enough, brings a great freedom with it. It gives a freedom to have lots of ideas, most of which may be wrong or stupid or ill-informed, but you can try them out with people and you can very quickly, they'll expose if they're good friends, what was wrong. And just occasionally you find that you've had an idea that survives this rather severe filter. And then you can devote more thought and energy to that idea, an energy that would have got dissipated in all the other bad ideas <laughs> if you hadn't had such a good environment. Now I'm, I'm thinking there of academic ideas, but now let's, let's take it to the moral sphere. And why does this matter? It matters because actually everything we're talking about in the networked age, and for that matter, so many other technologies that are becoming available to us, the deeper you dig, there are specific ethical issues, you know, the the ethical issues of citizenship and so on, which the report focuses on, but the deeper you dig, the more it comes down to what does it mean to be human? Why are we here? What are humans for? What does human flourishing consist of? And if we don't get those ideas right, we won't get anything else right. And that needs, I think, first of all, space for personal moral development, which is recommendation six. Speaking for myself, you know, we need time alone for that purpose. But it shouldn't be restricted to time alone because we we need the wisdom of other people, what the Hebrew literature called iron sharpening iron, as we engage with each other we get the ideas refined, we get the bad ideas filtered out if we're in a helpful community. And that means, as you just said, Adam, being able to sort of think about these things, as it were, quietly with a small group of trusted friends and family and not being too quick then to go and announce that to the world until we've had time. You know, it's always better for your close friends to show that you're making a fool of yourself than for the rest of the world to show that you're making a fool of yourself. So the time to do that And just to illustrate it with what Dominic was talking about a moment ago, it happens that I'm speaking to you now about 50 metres from where Sir Paul Collier, our next door neighbour, is also in lockdown. And his last book on the future of capitalism, well, Michael Sandel described it as a work of intellectual trespass because here was an economist talking about ethics (laughs) and showing that actually economics can be ethical and What his next work is going to be showing is that it's not just the individual. It's that humans have this extraordinary capacity for cooperation in a way that vastly exceeds anything else in the animal kingdom. This capacity to work together means that human flourishing is to be seen not just as an individual thing. Of course, we want individuals to flourish, but it's a community thing. It's relating the micro to the macro in a very important way, but but it starts with personal moral reflection refined within small groups where we're we're slow to announce to the world and quick to refine things and think about things ourselves. A small group that knows you, or at least knows you a little, 
and can have sympathy and empathy for you as a whole person, not just the temporary embodiment of a viewpoint divorced from the whole person. Absolutely. You can, you can, be, you can afford to be wrong in that, in that smaller group because the people who you're, you're engaging with, they know that you're wrong about this, but you're not a wrong person. I, I love that way of putting it. Dr. Burbage? No, exactly. I think this is exactly where we felt a need for, for a bit of a prod towards current discussions. Because when you look at the privacy debate, what it boils down to are those who believe in freedom on the one hand, and others who see collective goods that are going to be lost unless we have collective action. And that could come in the form of national security, like the famous case of trying to hack an iPhone uh, to be able to get the data on suspected terrorists, that being in, in the national interest, it was argued. Or it could be in terms of things like COVID-19 response, where we say we really need to share location data or be mandated to, to share or be forced to share in order to help the public health emergency. So you can see that the fight there seems to be between the collective and the individual. And the problem with that framing is that from those who believe in freedom for the individual, they are quickly put in a camp of promoting libertarianism. That is the license to do as you please, which is an unfortunate framing. There can be merits to, to of course, the libertarian argument and many articulate commentators have, have given those merits. But from the point of view of politics and what we should do collectively, it has a difficulty in its articulation because each person's reason for a license can be different. And so it's impossible to compare the two sides of that debate when one side has one single overriding reason and the other side is this cacophony of noise about all the kind of different things that one would like to do. So for example, some people just want privacy for its own sake. They just like being more alone and having a quieter life. Other people are suspicious of big government or big authorities that may say they've got a good purpose for the use of the data, but in fact make alternative uh, uses of it further down the line. So there's a whole myriad of different reasons, and that does damage to the ability to articulate that other side of the debate. And so we need to find a different vocabulary for understanding the kind of trade-off that we're making and one that also includes the good habits that citizens form when they are given their own agency over problems. And so that's why we thought, let's try and prod this debate in a totally new direction and make a recommendation that calls people to promote the value of privacy for personal moral development. Normally, we would say privacy self-defined in its use by nature, and that's what makes it private. But we've got to understand that there is an aspect to which one can, for the sake of a collective good, 
override some of the agency and virtues of users that would actually have long-term benefit for that very same end. So one of the things I would say, for example, about this is not in the report, but just my own opinion, is that that there is a serious problem in articulating the benefits of the COVID-19 tracking apps, which is that we are not getting the personal involvement that would normally make viral the use of apps. And that is because we are having them being pushed as something necessary from a government's point of view for the security and the safety of people, which is very true. They're very important and there's great potential to really save a lot of lives if we can find and use some of these technological solutions. But the way things actually spread online is when someone loves it so much that they promote it and that authenticity of personal recommendation drives the whole online market. And therefore, we have to engage with people's moral ideals and say, what kind of society do you want and what kind of way of beating this virus do you think is going to work? And here's a range of options which are tailored around the sorts of um, apps that you use in terms of self-help apps or in terms of people who listen to podcasts and they think this is great because it's intellectually developing me. So likewise, I want to take on something that's going to develop my community. And until you make it agent-centered, it's never going to go viral in that sort of online popularity mode. And so we need to really rethink this whole debate for what people are doing online and realize that people are, as the sociologist Christian Smith says, they are moral believing animals. People are moral believing animals. And that means that we have this moral dimension to everything that we're doing and making something successful in collective agency captures a spirit of that. It gives room for that. And so we also feel that we need to understand the value of privacy and the value of our interaction with online technologies in terms of what it means for our personal moral development. It seems to me that works in both ways, not not just that framing these things in moral terms can help advance the issue itself by energizing people to engage with the issue, but also in the other direction, something I've been thinking about throughout our discussion today is that the more that we depend upon individuals to exercise agency in their daily lives, to make decisions individually, collectively, and not just outsource this to, to technology, it requires them to exercise their own sort of exercise and build their own morality, their own virtue. Years ago, Professor Harvey Mansfield from, from Harvard University wrote a wonderful essay called Rational Control, and then the subtitle was or life without virtue. And his point was the more that, and this is so more than a decade ago at this point, I think. So before some of the technologies we've been talking about, he he fretted that, that the more that we outsource our day-to-day life to rational control. And the example he used to begin the essay was the now ubiquitous automatic faucets that turn on when you put your hands, when you present your hands in front of them, rather than actually having to turn them on. The more that we do that, the more we remove human virtue from human life. And the more that we remove it, the more we undermine our capacity to exercise that virtue when we need it, that capacity for virtuous decision-making, moral decision-making atrophies, the more we outsource it to these technologies. 
I do want to touch on one other of the recommendations here, and it gets to what we were just discussing in many ways, is teach listening as a civic virtue. This is recommendation four, and there's a wonderful line at the, towards the end of this recommendation. You say, um, on the political front, the increased ability of everyone to state their views and publicize them to everybody else means that there is no longer any scarcity of good speakers, but instead a scarcity of good listeners. And citizenship through good listening needs to be taught as a civic virtue. And that struck me immediately as, as absolutely correct, albeit as somebody who probably does more speaking than he should. When the internet arose, the idea was anybody could speak, anybody could have a platform, anybody could be a reporter, but there wasn't, there wasn't as much focus on everybody can become a great listener. And of course, the internet opened up amazingly our capacity for research, for obtaining information. But I'd say this focus on listening is really something special about this, these recommendations. Professor Briggs, why don't you tell us about this one? Um, how, did this, how did you arrive upon this conclusion? There was a, uh, an Oxford professor of moral philosophy who a little over 100 years ago, actually, was giving a welcome speech to freshman students at Oxford, and fresh women too, actually. He said, you're, you're now about to embark on a course of studies. Together they form a noble adventure. But I'd like to remind you of an important point. I've got it in front of me, so I can read it to you. Some of you, when you go down from the university, will go into the church or the bar or the House of Commons or the Home Civil Service or the Indian or Colonial Service. A bit period piece in the language. It was early Edwardian times. Some may go into the army, some into industry and commerce. And in those days, some may become country gentlemen. I hope a few, I hope it'll be very few, will become teachers or dons. Let me make this clear to you. Except for the last category, nothing that you learn from your studies will be of the slightest possible use to you in afterlife. Save this, that if you work hard and intelligently, you should be able to detect when someone is talking rot. And that, in my view, is the main, if not the same, sole view of education. <laughs> now, I love that. Of course, there's much more to it than that. But this ability to know when someone else is talking rot is hard won. It doesn't come quickly. It doesn't come easily. And the more subtle and clever the person talking the rot is, the, the harder it is to discern it and the harder you have to work. Now, that predates anything of the networked age and the machine learning age. But the capacity, as it were, for talking rot has got industrialized in a scale as never before. So you have some of the biggest industries in the world employing some of the best minds in the world, <laughs> often on some of the highest salaries in the world, <laughs> to, to, to engineer the machine learning to, to nudge you, to push you, to persuade you in ways that they want, which might simply be increasing your screen time, but it might be much more than that. So we need that capacity to discern when, when rot is being talked. And then, and perhaps this is more important actually uh, on this recommendation, also the capacity to listen and to understand when someone is communicating something very important to us. And it may be something that's very important to them. And again, this, this, this predates uh, the networked age in marriage. 
whether it's the key, I don't know, but a key in marriage is to be able to listen carefully to the partner and to hear not only the rational content of what they're saying, but also the effective, the emotional capacity of what they're saying. And this is so important that some counsellors encourage people to have an object, could be a, a napkin or something, and let the person who's trying to communicate hold the napkin so that their partner sees that it's now their time to listen, not their time to respond, not their time to agree or disagree, but their time to listen. And at most in their reflection to reflect what they're hearing and the emotions that they're sensing as their partner speaks. Now, if that's important in marriage, it's important in all these other relationships. And like everything else we're talking about, it needs to be applied afresh in the networked age. So we're going to have to learn how, how to develop and use that skill in contexts that maybe, as we were saying earlier, relatively new to some of us, and certainly are different from those contexts when we're sitting in the same room together. Now, speaking of sitting in the same room, our conversations have all been intermediated online since we haven't been able to meet in person. One person who hasn't been able to join us, but I want to make sure to credit him, is your, your fellow co-author, Professor Michael Rice, not been able to join us, who, but who helped author the report. I do want to thank both of you, Professor Briggs and Dr. Burbage, both for, for bringing this report to me and for facilitating these conversations. I've, I've enjoyed this immensely, and I've learned quite a lot from it. Well, Adam, thank you very much for convening this. It's been a joy to engage with you. And uh, thank you for what you've shared. And thank you for the others you've brought into the episodes two and three as well. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot. and look forward to continuing the conversation. Well, absolutely. And I'd encourage our listeners one last time to look up the report for themselves, citizenshipinanetworkedage.org, published by the University of Oxford and Templeton World Charity Foundation. There's an entire website built for the report, and so they'll be able to find the report, archives of these discussions, and others to continue these conversations. And I'll, I'll add in conclusion that at the American Enterprise Institute, we're considering many of these issues ourselves, working on a variety of these reports, both focused on technology in general, but also these questions, uh, these timeless questions of institution, of community, of deliberation, and so on. And so I think it's been a, a, a perfect match of institutions, and I've enjoyed these conversations immensely. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and please tune in for other episodes of the AEI Events Podcast. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.